Now, I know it does sound like a bit of a downer to talk about pain and perseverance because we start a new year anticipating success. We don't look forward to the failures and frustrations that will come along the way. It's like snow, right? We can do without it. I mean, if things had gone according to plan for us here at Crestwick, we would actually have been preparing to run ball hockey, right? But we failed to get enough kids registered. But we will not let that discourage us because we recognize that it is part of the process of learning to minister to our community. And I was reminded of this quote that I found years ago on the blog of Daryl Dash. He quotes a book called Creativity, Inc. And it says, failure is a manifestation of learning and exploration. If you aren't experiencing failure, then you are making a far worse mistake. You are being driven by the desire to avoid it. And for leaders especially, this strategy, trying to avoid failure by outthinking it, dooms you to fail. So this morning, I'd like you to walk with me through the story of how the people of God rebuilt the temple so that we can reflect on how God providentially uses failure and adversity for His glory. So we'll read Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 up to verse 6, and I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the people around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. That's quite a contrast from Psalm 126, verse 1 to verse 3, isn't it? That's a passage that Heather read earlier. That psalm captures the excitement of the people as they began the work of rebuilding the temple. They knew that their return to Jerusalem was a second exodus, a mighty work of God. In fact, if you look at Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, the way they describe the building of the temple is meant to mimic how Solomon had built the temple. It's meant to emphasize their sense, their understanding, 
that God's purposes were continuing to be fulfilled in them. And because they knew that God's purposes were being fulfilled and worked out in and through them, they were looking forward to even greater things than the return to Jerusalem. They were anticipating the coming of God's anointed king and savior. They were anticipating the restoration of the kingdom. In fact, they were looking forward to the coming of a new creation. And so it is no surprise that we are told in Ezra chapter 3 verse 1 that they assembled together as one in Jerusalem. The people were united around a common purpose. They were not simply rebuilding the temple. They were renewing their covenant commitment. And the altar that they rebuilt in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, expressed their dedication to God, their determination to worship Yahweh alone. These were Jews who had been chastened by the exile. And their being in Jerusalem was for them a new beginning in the land, a restoration to the purposes of God. And their commitment to God then is even more commendable because they were facing hostility and opposition. And their worship in chapter 3 was more than an act of courageous defiance. It was for them an act of humble faith. See, they may have had the support of Cyrus to rebuild the temple, but Jerusalem was four months away from Babylon. Cyrus's support didn't mean much because the people around them were stronger and the people around them were not friendly. And so we read in verse 3, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Or perhaps scholars would say, despite their fear is better rendered as because they feared. Their fear of the nations rightly drove the people of God to rely on God alone. That's why they made their sacrifices. They were expressing their confidence, their trust, their need of God. So that they were united not only by a common purpose of restoring the people to faithfulness to God, but by a common dependence and reliance upon their sovereign God. And as they observed the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 4, they were strengthened. Because God had instituted the Feast of Tabernacles to remind them of His unfailing covenant faithfulness throughout their wilderness wanderings. And in their observance of that feast, they realized that the same covenant commitment that had taken them from Egypt to, to Canaan was still the same covenant faithfulness that had sustained them through the exile and that had brought them back from exile. God had not failed them. God was continuing to be faithful. And the festival of tabernacles emphasized God's covenant commitment. Now for us as a church, 
If you remember in June 2022, last year, we were challenged to give, to increase our giving by 11% so that we could cover expenses. And, you know, finance said, wow, that's a really big ask in, in these uncertain times, difficult financial times. Guess what? In the first quarter, from September to November, by God's grace, we met that target. I think we were short by $12, right? <laughs> so several people actually said, all right, I'll cover the 12 <laughs> But, you know, what looked like a big ask was nothing to God. And we are seeing God's continuing faithfulness as we depend on Him. December was even better. I don't have the final figures, but um, Kathy and I were looking at it in December, and we were just saying, wow. This is not reason for us to relax or be complacent. God's goodness to us should motivate us to greater generosity, obedience, and dependence upon Him. And that's exactly what happened to the people of God as they focused on God and His purposes for them. They were making progress. We are told in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, that they laid the foundation of the temple with great rejoicing. So that they sang in verse 11, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. And they sang it with joy because they, the, build, the laying of that foundation showed them that God had not given up on them despite their sinfulness. See, the temple wasn't simply a building where they could gather. It symbolized far more than that. It was, for them, God's address here on earth, you, will, you might say. It pointed them to their sovereign God who defined their identity and purpose. As Wallace Ben would say, the temple spoke of God's imminence as well as His transcendence, and that He had initiated a relationship by grace with His people, and that He, by His presence, dwelt with them and among them. Therein lay their hope of defeating their enemies and knowing God's shalom, His peace, and the fulfillment of His purposes of grace for them. In human terms, they were small and weak in comparison to other nations. But the greatness they had experienced in national life was God's doing and evidence of His presence with them. He made them great and a light to other nations. So the temple was to them an enduring symbol of God's covenant faithfulness that gave them hope for the future. That's why they sang, He is good. His love towards Israel endures forever. They were bearing witness to one another that God's love had not failed. And more than that, if you look at verse 13, the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. They were bearing witness to the nations around them of the unfailing faithfulness of their covenant Lord. But at the same time, we are told in verse 13 that Many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation, oh, that's verse 12, 
of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. You see, the older people who had seen the glories of Solomon's temple could see by the dimensions of this foundation that the temple would not be as grand as Solomon's temple. And so they wept. They mourned over what they had lost. They mourned over the building that was to be built. To them, their success looked more like a failure. And to make matters worse, we find in chapter 4 that they encountered even more opposition. The people around them offered to help them build the temple, according to verse 1 and 2. But Zerubbabel and the other leaders rejected their offer politely but firmly. They didn't do this out of pride, but out of a desire to be faithful to God. You see, even if the people of the land claimed to worship God, according to 2 Kings chapter 17, they didn't have the right theology. They thought of Yahweh as one of many gods. And so, as Derek Kidner would say, to worship with the people of the land would be to bring back the idolatrous practices which had caused the Lord's glory to leave the temple. In fact, in chapter 4 verse 1, the writer warns us by calling these people enemies of Judah and Benjamin. He's warning us that the offer was not being made in good faith and telling us they were right to reject the offer. And so for acting with integrity, the people of God once more faced opposition. Then the people around them set out, verse 4 and verse 5, to discourage the people of Judah and to make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That was true then. Still true today, isn't it? We live in a sinful, fallen world that is hostile to faithful living. When you act with integrity, it will cost you. Even now, as we speak, brethren, brothers and sisters around the world are dying for their faith. Sounds like a defeat. But if you read that in light of Revelation 12, verse 11, it is clear that their death might look like a defeat, but it is actually a triumph. They triumphed for they were by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. See, brothers and sisters, faithfulness to God, not results, is the true measure of Christian success. Now for us, here in Canada, here in Guelph, faithfulness might, not mean, getting might mean getting hassled at work or at school or being labeled intolerant, unloving, bigoted, ignorant, or it could mean certain jobs are close to us. It is not death, but it can be discouraging. Now, to give us an idea of the kind of opposition and political pressure the people of God had to overcome, in verse chapter 4, verse 7 up to verse 23, 
The writer tells us about how their enemies were able to stop the work of the walls, the work to rebuild the walls around 465 B.C. This was before Nehemiah came on the scene. And their opponents used a cunning mixture of slanted truths and innuendo. They were telling the truth, but sort of. And this was an event about 50 years after the temple was completed. If you see the timeline on screen, I hope, yes. Not very good at pictures, but um, you will see that the temple had been rebuilt in 516. And we are told that the accusation that, that the rebuilding of the wall happened during the years of Artaxerxes. So this is about 50 years after the temple had been completed. And it was discouraging to them. Now, we are told in verse 24, chapter 4, verse 24, that in the case of the temple rebuilding, the work came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That would be about 17 to 19 years because of the opposition that was listed, that was noted in verse 4 and verse 5 of chapter 4. Can you imagine the sense of failure the people of God had every time they looked at an abandoned, unfinished temple? For 19 years, they saw this temple. The foundations had been laid. Maybe one or two stones had been set, but it was nowhere complete. They would have been discouraged and disheartened. And we can understand why they stopped. Their enemies were too powerful. And the product, the final product, well, it was going to be a disappointment anyway. It wasn't going to be close to being Solomon's temple. And to make matters worse, the people themselves were struggling to survive. So what was the point? And we can relate, right? Life is hard. We face pressure on every side. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easier to focus on your concerns and disengage from the life of the church. It's easy to get distracted. And that's exactly what happened to the people of God. They started with great zeal, laid the foundation. But opposition, the reality of life, the disappointment with the project made their enthusiasm wane. So for 18, 19 years, the work stopped. Chapter 5. Here's the good news. God, in His grace, refused to let the people of God wither away in self-centered apathy. He sent Haggai and Zechariah to reorient them to their calling to get them back to work. We are told, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Eda, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. How did Haggai and Ze Zechariah support them? Well, Haggai... We don't have time to go to Haggai, but Haggai 
rebuked their selfish focus. He challenged them. You say it's not time to build God's house? So is it time for you to live in nice paneled houses? Where are your priorities, people? And as he rebuked their selfishness, he also reassured them of God's faithful help as they obeyed. He reminded them, God is with us. Zechariah, for his part, reminded them of God's covenant commitment to them. He told them, God is in our midst. And because He is in our midst, He would enable them to build the temple. See, the best way to overcome discouragement is to go back to God and to have His Word evaluate our circumstances. God's Word must always be the lens through which we view life because as the people of God, we walk by faith and not by sight. Now, I would love to be able to say that as they went back to work, things went smoothly. But that's not, what, that's not how the story goes. Verse 3, verse 4, we are told that as they rebuilt the house of God in Jerusalem with the prophets of God with them, supporting them, at that time, chapter 5, verse 3, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates went to them and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? Oops. More opposition. But look at verse 5. But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to Darius, and his written reply could be received. They may have had opposition, but God was watching over them so that they were able to continue building while Darius was being consulted. And mind you, God didn't just zap Tatanai, the governor, into being considerate. If you read the letter of Tatanai to Darius, you realize that the wise, humble, and theologically driven answer of the leaders actually convinced him to consult with Darius. Let me read verse 11 to verse 17 of chapter 5. This is the answer that the elders of the Jews gave. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. You notice their sense of guilt, their recognition, we deserve to be exiled. And their understanding of who God is, the God of heaven and earth. Verse 13, however, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Sheshbazar, whom he had appointed governor, and he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Shashbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God in Jerusalem. From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but it is not yet finished. They only tell the truth. And I think 
for our day, the Jewish elders are a model of respectful diplomacy that we need to follow. We do not need political power in order to be faithful to God, but we need to be wise. Paul Tripp points out, Living as a Bible believer means much more than getting your doctrine right and searching for those who seek to reshape or negate it in some way. Living as a Bible believer means embedding your story in the larger story of redemption. If you're God's child, then His story by grace is your story. His presence and power are your hope. Where the story is going is where your story is going. And the final victory at the end is your victory too. We don't have to fear that the enemies of what is right will ultimately win. Could it be that much of the fearful, defensive, angry, and anxious reactivity that lives in the Christian community and in our social media conversation is the result of a God's story forgetfulness. See, God is in control. And we see that when Darius, in chapter 6, verse 1, ordered a search for Cyrus' decree. The search began in the archives of Babylon and ended with the finding of a scroll about 450 kilometers away in the citadel of Ekbatana in Media. In our day, we could think of it this way. It's as if the decree had been issued at Parliament Hill in Ottawa, and the record of the decree was found in the archives of Queen's Park in Toronto 20 years later without the aid of computers. That is God at work. And as a result... Darius, the king, allowed the work to proceed without interference. Verse 6 and verse 7. Here is the decree of Darius, or the response of Darius. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar, Bozenai, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house of God on this site. That's clear enough, right? And in case they didn't catch it, look at verse 11. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. That's pretty radical support, right? But there's more, actually. If you look at verse 8 and verse 8 to verse 10. Moreover, I hereby decree that what you are to do for these elders, what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this temple of God, their expenses, hear this, are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of Trans-Euphrates, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail. Imagine. Darius paid for the temple to be completed and for sacrifices to be offered. 
Bottom line, in the providence of God, what looked like another insurmountable obstacle turned out to be the means by which God provided for the people of Israel to finish the construction. And so the work was completed, chapter 6 and verse 19 to 22. They celebrated the Passover, rejoicing in the faithfulness of God. Here's what they came to, chapter 6, verse 22. For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. They call him the king of Assyria because the king of Assyria is the prototypical evil opponent. They rejoiced in the faithfulness of God and they realized God had not stopped being good even while they faced opposition. In the midst of opposition, God was faithfully working out His purposes, accomplishing His plans. But then you might say, why didn't God just do it right the first time? Come on. He could have done that, right? Save them all the trouble. Why does church work have to be so hard? Why did the work take so long and involve so much frustration? Well, see, God isn't just interested in finishing buildings. He's actually far more interested in building His people. In the end, the people came to a deeper understanding and fuller experience of the greatness of God as they struggled to build the temple. Beyond that, it also became very obvious that it was God who had enabled them to build the temple. That's why they could say, verse 22, the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria. They couldn't claim victory for themselves. They knew it was God. And so it is with us. We don't like adversity. But let's understand that adversity is God's chisel that shapes us. Our failures humble us. The pain we share as we build binds us together. Our frustration teaches us patience. Those of you who are married or have kids, you know that. Stress exposes our flaws and drives us back to God. And we learn our need of Him. But beyond that, adversity teaches us to yearn for Him. See, humanly speaking, I, I find that following God often sounds like Gil Gimli the dwarf's call to action from Lord of the Rings. You know, you know that scene where they were deciding to launch an assault on Mordor so they could distract Sauron from Frodo's efforts to reach Mount Doom. I, I, we're on live stream, so I can't show the YouTube clip. I, I wish I could show it. But I love his courage. He says, 
Certainty of death? Small chance of success? What are we waiting for? You know, that's often what it means to serve the Lord. But our confidence in the midst of the pain of struggle is found in the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 16. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. You don't say. (laughs) But take heart. I have overcome the world. And you know how he triumphed, don't you? He triumphed by his death. The most epic fail of all. But through that death, he purchased our redemption, established the new covenant, and inaugurated the new creation in his resurrection. And here's the awesome thing. As his new covenant people, God is building you and me to be his temple, the church. That's the passage that Isaac read this morning. We are being built together as living stones, built on Jesus, the chief cornerstone, to be a spiritual house. God dwells in us by His Spirit so that we may demonstrate together the beauty of the gospel He has called us to proclaim. And being God's temple demands that we die to self, humbly serve one another, and sacrificially step into the opportunities God is giving us to proclaim His excellencies. And I think we understand. Being God's temple in Guelph is way beyond our capability. But God is leading us into these challenges so that we would learn to rely on Him. Our faith is strengthened the more it is tested. God allows us leads us into adversity, frustration, and failure as we seek to fulfill our calling from Him so that we may know Him more fully. And as we know Him more, we become more like Him. See, that's the goal, isn't it? And ultimately, God wants us to want Him more than we want success. That's what happened to the people of God here. More than building the temple, they learned to desire God, to delight in Him, to rejoice in Him. And that's what God is leading us into, to become more like Him so that we learn to desire Him more and more. And then in everything we accomplish, We cannot but give our God the glory. So I pray that the struggles of the coming year would drive us back to our faithful God. As we sang earlier, He will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for who You are. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. 
But at the same time, we thank you that you give us the privilege of learning to think your thoughts after you by giving us your word. And you lead us through difficult circumstances to refine, to shape, to mold us so that we may learn more and more to think your thoughts after you. Father, we pray, as we face the challenges of the coming year, help us not simply to rely on ourselves, but to recognize that as you lead us into these challenges, you have promised never to leave us nor forsake us, that you are with us, and therefore we need to rest and rely upon you. And that it goes, and that the work isn't just about the work. It is about you drawing us to yourself so that we may know you, whom to know is eternal life. So, Father, we pray as we seek to live out our callings in obedience to you, help us, Father, to be drawn closer to you, to become more like you as we face the challenges of this coming year. And we thank you that by your Spirit, you are at work in and through us for your glory. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our closing song.